All right, and if you are here and have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn over to Genesis 16. Um, On Sunday nights, we've been working through uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, what we try to do on Sunday nights is is have it to be a little bit more interactive than a typical sermon. And so it is permissible. So if you haven't been here before, it might shock you that people are going to ask questions in the middle or interrupt me. That's okay. Um, as you know, that's okay with to a point, right? <laughs> and um, because we're trying to get a little bit deeper here on Sunday nights to understand uh, some of the more the details of God's word as it's laid out for us, uh, we're lately talking about Abraham and the way God formed a covenant with Abraham and his family. And tonight we get to read this very interesting story in chapter 16. If you'll take a look at it in your Bible or in your bulletin, I want to read it to us, and then we'll talk about it. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, uh, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said, said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lacha Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. And Abraham, once again, is in a messy situation, right? Uh, We've seen this uh, multiple times, and usually it has the same basic pattern to it. Maybe you've noticed the pattern. Abraham gets in a mess because he... Does what? 
distrusts, uh, or he has some glitch of faith, or, or Sarai has a glitch of faith, and they, instead of waiting on God and trusting in his promise to come about in God's timing, they go about scheming, trying to figure out how they can get what God has promised them by their own hands. And right away, that always leads to a royal mess that then God has to come in and clean up. Same thing happens here. But I think um, the, the struggle that Sarai and Abram ha- have here is something that we should be able to relate to. Uh, it's not like Sarai and Abram are just being completely abnormally human here. They're being very normally human in their struggle. Uh, did you notice that note that said that um, Abram, by the time Ishmael was born, had been in the land for 10 years So you kind of have to get your timeline right to understand this story. Uh, God came to Abram, told him to leave his father's house. He did that. When he got there, a famine happened. He had to go to Egypt. He lied about his wife being his sister. Pharaoh gave him a whole bunch of stuff. By the way, part of that stuff that, that Pharaoh gave him, Egyptian female servants, Hagar, right? Hagar probably came in with that deal. Uh, which is, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later, what significance that might have. But Abraham goes back to the land, and now it's 10 years since he's been back in the land. He's fought a battle to save Lot, his nephew, and 10 years later, he still doesn't have a child. Even though God, we saw this last time we were together, last week, that God cut a covenant with Abraham to promise solemnly, to swear that he would provide Uh, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet 10 years later, Sarah is the same old Sarah. Abram's the same old Abram, and they're just 10 years older. No child. Think about the, the humanness of that. How would you feel? Or probably a better way to ask it, how do you feel when God has made a promise or when you read something in the Bible about what God does for the lives of his people and you think, man, That seems to be a long way off from what I actually experience. Ever had that? Um, You might call it the big gap between promise and reality. Promise and reality. And in that gap, we have a tendency to believe we're invisible to God. There's nothing uh, worse than feeling like you're invisible. Or very few things worse than it. Uh, Ralph Ellison, the the great African-American writer, wrote a book called Invisible Man. I I don't remember when he wrote it, maybe 1950s, 60s. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You can check my math. But famous book. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize. But he described the African-American experience during the Jim Crow years. He described it as being invisible and how how no one actually paid attention or saw Um, him and other African-Americans for who they were as people. They just saw them kind of as a group or as a problem to be solved through legal means. And and that that novel is justly famous because he, he touched on something that touches on the heartstrings of every human being. For someone not to see you, for someone not to hear you is almost worse than not even being alive sometimes. Right? Don't you agree? And yet, faith has something to offer to us. Faith in God has something to offer to us in those times where we feel invisible that nothing else in the world has to offer. And so if you look at your bulletin, I just want to talk you through the story tonight. 
in three ways. Uh, first of all, let's look at the gap, the gap between promise and reality, and think a little bit about when we're tempted to doubt God's care, because we are too, just like Sarah. And then I want you to see the strife that results, because not believing in God's care always has negative effects in your life, whether you realize it or not. And then lastly, we want to see the beautiful ending, the God of seeing, as, as Hagar calls him, the God who sees me. And as the name Ishmael means, the God who hears me. Let's think about that. First of all, there's the gap between promise and reality. We are all tempted to doubt when we go into that gap. Um, how good are you at waiting? Uh, even on small things, like when you're waiting, this is lately even worse than it used to be, waiting on a table at a restaurant. That's the simplest of things that we can wait on. And yet... Are you good at it? At what point do you lose your cool? When you lose your cool, what do you do? How do you treat people in that situation? Now think about it. I mean, if we can't even wait on a table at a restaurant. You hear me? If we can't even wait on a table at a restaurant, how are we going to wait on these massive things that God in Scripture has promised to his people, even though... He's promised many of them in the future rather than in the present. That's really hard to do. And so I think we got to incarnate a little bit there in verse 16, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 16. We got to incarnate a little bit or learn how to walk in the shoes of Sarah and Abraham. They, they had been promised children like the stars in the sky, but yet they didn't have a single one. Look at verse 1 Sarah had borne him no children. And so Sarah jumps to the conclusion that I think most of us jump to when we wait, even when you're waiting on the table of the restaurant. What do you think? They forgot me. And so you go up to that little table. You got stand for four, right? <laughs> Have you forgotten? And usually they roll their eyes. No, I haven't forgotten. You're just still on the list. Chill out, right? But yet it's almost impossible for us when we're waiting not to feel that. And so look at the way Sarah responds there in verse 2. What does she say about God? She has had no children, 10 years, since the promise. What does she say about God? God has prevented me from having children. Uh, the word there is literally God has stood in my way. God has gotten in between me and the thing he promised which is a kind of a weird thought to have, but you understand her thought because probably you felt that way too. God has gotten in between me and the good thing that God said he's promised me to have in the gospel. Now, let's, let's brainstorm a little bit. What do you think is behind this? There could be any number of right answers. What is behind this in Sarah's heart? Why does she think God is the one preventing her from having a child? Now, there's lots of right answers, so let's just list them. From obvious to less than obvious. There you go. Exactly. She's, she's already recognized. She's old. She's been barren. It must be a miracle if I have a child. So if I don't have a child, it means God's withheld the miracle, which means he's preventing me. That's the most obvious one, right? Well, what are some of the others that might be? Maybe even in combination with that one, you know, because I'm sure she's thinking that one. Yes, I think that's really right, right? What have I done? 
She obviously thinks she's the problem. God has prevented me. She doesn't say to Abraham, God has prevented you. She says, God has prevented me. Um, this is a common problem. Some, a lot of times we preach against the opposite problem, which is pride, to think that I'm too good for God or too good for the gospel. But we have to preach also about this problem. A lot of times people believe they're not good enough for the gospel. The mentality of, I can't go to church because if I did, the walls would fall in on me. You know, lightning would strike me if I prayed. You know, I'm just not worthy. I'm sure there's some level of this going on in Sarah's heart. I know it's not Abraham she may be thinking because I've seen him. I've seen his spiritual life. Abraham walks with God. It must be me. I must be the reason why God is not giving him what he promised him. And so let me get out of the way. Since God's preventing me, let me get out of the way and put somebody else in my place so that God will give Abraham what he promised him. And that's when she comes up with this scheme. Which, as we've already noted, this is one of Abraham and Sarah's favorite. It seems like it's a hobby at this point. Scheming. They come up with all kinds of plans. And it's not going to stop here. I mean, Abraham's going to keep doing it. Isaac's going to pick it up. Jacob's going to pick it up. And on down through the, pretty much the whole Old Testament, right? They're going to constantly be scheming. Well, here's her scheme now. Let's take the female Egyptian servant that we had gotten all those years ago when we were down in Egypt a decade ago, and let's give her to Abraham as a second wife. That was a thing that was culturally permissible back then, although God never endorsed the polygamy. It was culturally permissible. And so Sarah said, let me give Hagar as a second wife so that through Hagar, maybe I will be built up, she says. Uh, that's what it means there in uh, the end of verse 2 where she says, that I shall obtain children by her. And the footnote in the ESV says, that I may be built up by her. In other words, maybe I'll still get to have a share in what God is promising by stepping out of the way for a time, letting her be my surrogate, and then I can come in and be with Abraham and we can inherit the promises. How does that sound for a scheme? <clears throat> you know, I mean, putting aside the cultural differences, which are pretty massive, I would think we'd have to say that sounds like a fairly decent plan, right? I mean, it is definitely a way to try to get a child when you can't have one. Don't you think? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Now, before we get to what could go wrong, which, you know, a lot could and a lot did go wrong, I want you to think about this. Your faith, time and time again, is going to be severely tested in the same way that Abraham's and Sarah's is being tested right here. Every time you and I walk into what feels like a gap between God's promise and our lived reality, we are tested either to wait on God in humble trust or to take matters into our own hands and scheme every single time. And actually, that is God's design for life in this world. Uh, Tim touched on it this morning. Suffering is sent into our lives by God on purpose in order to test us. Just like with Job, just like with the church at Smyrna that Tim was speaking about this morning. Well, that's true of every Christian. If you don't believe me, keep your finger in uh, Genesis 16 and go to 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1. And you'll see 
Peter the Apostle says that every Christian experiences the same test, the same dynamic part of their lives. Uh, Somebody start reading at verse 5, and I'll tell you when to stop. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 5, and I'll, I'll give you a, an indication when to stop. Okay, thank you, Mitchell. Did you see we're being kept through faith for salvation to be revealed when? The last time. Meaning what? Not this time. Right? Not now. So having to wait till the last time, which, which automatically opens up a gap between promise and reality. And then what does it say in the gap is happening? Various trials, if necessary. Um, This is a great thing about being a Christian. You can trust that whatever trials you have in your life, God judged them necessary. God doesn't give you one that he doesn't believe is necessary to your life. There are no unnecessary trials to the believer. Only the necessary ones. That's cool. And yet, okay, so why does he send necessary trials? In order that your faith tested might be like gold. When you dig gold out of the ground, it doesn't quite look like gold. Why? Because it's got a whole lot of stuff in it that's not gold. It's mixed with other metals and various other things. And so you put it in the fire so that all the other stuff would melt away and the gold would be left. And so when God puts faith into the heart of a person and they become a Christian, that gold is unpurified gold. That faith is a faith kind of in its raw form. And the whole rest of your life until you get to heaven and each of us have a different timetable. God alone knows what that timetable is. But the whole rest of our lives is the process of melting away the dross, melting away the extra stuff, which is what dross is, to leave behind the pure gold. That will one day be to the praise, it says, of Jesus Christ's glory. Well, that's the very thing that was going on with Sarah and Abraham, if you want to go back to Genesis 16. Same exact thing. God had promised something that would only be revealed at the last time. And here they were living in the gap. And what they were being tested for was that the dross still left in their faith, which we see in this story, there's quite a bit of dross left could be burnt away through hard experience so that would one, one day what would be left was a pure faith. You know you've got dross when scheming, when justifying disobedience to God, when neglecting the duties you know God has given you because you're, you're worried about what he hasn't given you, Right? When those things become the, the, the main sort of diet of your life, you know that's dross, and you need to recognize God's about to burn it off. If you're a Christian, God's going to burn it away. 
Did you hear all those things I listed? Scheming, justifying disobedience to God. Um, what was the last one I said? It was an important one. I forgot it, though. What was it? Scheming, justifying your disobedience to God, and yeah, I'm going to blank on it and not going to remember it, but maybe somebody wrote it down for the ages there. Yes, okay, yeah. So not doing the duty that you know God has asked you to do. Thank you, Ed. Uh, I knew it was an important one because this is one I do all the time when I'm in these moments. I'm not doing the things I know he's asked me to do because I'm sitting there fretting and worrying about what he hasn't given me. Like, you know, God, you haven't done this, that, and the other. And yet here's the other things God has done, and I know for sure he wants me to still do them. Right? That's getting lost in the gap. That's dross, which all of us have in our faith. Nobody's got perfect, pure faith, which is why you got to enter into the testing furnace called life. Um, Have you ever been tempted to believe God doesn't care, that he doesn't see you? Have you turned to one of those fake strategies before, those three that I just listed, that you hopefully wrote down by now so I don't have to repeat them? Have you ever fallen into those? You're not alone. You're right where God wants you to be. There's nothing that God has ever sent his children that he didn't judge necessary before he sent it. Wow. Now, secondly, let's look at the strife. Because even though we do often um, doubt God's care, and even though we do fall into some of those traps that we mentioned a moment ago, every time we do, something damaging happens. Um, there's always consequences for not trusting God. We might not think so. Uh, We tend to think the sins that really wreck our lives are what kind of sins? What sins wreck people's lives? The big ones. I call them the technicolor sins. You know, the ones that would get you on the cover of the ledger. Those sins. Those are the ones that wreck people's lives. You know, the the ones that everyone, even non-Christians, know are bad. And yet, I want to tell you, if you really read the Bible carefully, it's true, those sins will wreck you, by the way. Of course they will. We all know that, though, pretty much. What we don't know, and what the Bible tells you if you pay attention to it, is that the sins of not trusting the Lord, the sins that really only God can see, the sins of the heart are the ones that actually wreck you the most and can actually end up wrecking other people around you the most before you even realize that it is wrecking them and wrecking you. And so for Sarah, it might not have seemed like a big deal, frankly, that she doubted God was slow to keep his promise. After all, it had been 10 years. Uh, It might not have seemed to be a big deal that she did just what everybody else would have done in this situation. you got to understand, uh, during this time, this this was the strategy probably her neighbors and her friends. She got together to play bridge with the other ladies. And this is what they did when they couldn't bear children. I mean, this was just the way of the world at the time. Not a big deal, right? Very big deal. Look at what happens. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. I'm reading from verse uh, 2. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, he took Hagar And she became his wife. Verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on Sarai, her mistress. Tell me what that means. She looked with contempt on Sarai, her mistress. 
I'm the mistress now. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm the one who bore Abram a child. You didn't. How can you boss me around anymore? Uh, maybe, I don't know, we don't know this, but you can imagine all the drama that this might have caused. Maybe she felt like she was the favored one, you know, that Abraham favored her over Sarah. Maybe, or at least maybe Sarah felt that she was favored over her. Uh, it's hard to imagine one of those scenarios not being on the table. I mean, you know, that there's, they call them rival wives for a reason, right? Um, rivals, uh, the Bible even says this is the reason why not to do polygamy, because you're setting people up as rivals, which is a wrong thing to do. And this is exactly what happens. Uh, Hagar despises Sarah. She believes she's superior to Sarah. And then Sarah does what? Blames Abraham. Now, now, why do you think that's the case? Men, be careful before you answer this. In fact, I would like women to answer this question only. Only women answer this question. <clears throat> well, why did she do this? <laughs> What's that? Maybe the plan backfired, didn't want to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And it probably, yeah, probably something like that, right? That maybe in her mind, maybe this was true. Maybe Abraham had treated Hagar in such a way that it had encouraged Hagar to feel like she could show Sarai contempt, perhaps. Maybe Abraham is at fault, partly. We, we don't know. We're not given any of the details. What we do know, though, is this. A situation that was supposed to advance the promises of God did the opposite. Instead of creating unity in the family of the covenant, the family that was supposed to carry the covenant to the whole world, that family became a family of strife. Sarah against Abraham, Abraham against Sarah, Hagar against Sarah, Sarah against Hagar, and then Ishmael kind of caught between them. What a sad thing. You can imagine the other Egyptians who were the employees of Abraham's house probably took Hagar's side. And all the other ones that were a part of their house previously, before they had gone to Egypt, took Abraham's side and Sarah's side. And you, you got a mess on your hands. Absolute mess. Not what Sarah intended back in verses 1 and 2 when she hatched this plan. And so the only thing she, she knows how to do is do something about this, Abraham. Fix this. You got us into this, get us out of it. And Abraham's solution, again, verse 6, makes some sense. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Meaning what? That, that doesn't just mean, um, th this is actually very significant. Let me explain. Uh, when um, the servant was given to Abraham to have a child, she became his Wife, not, uh, she wasn't still a servant, right? She became a wife in the house. And basically what Abraham is doing as a way to solve the problem is, I'm demoting her back to servant status. She's under you, Sarah, once again. She's no longer parallel to you. You can do with her whatever you want to do because she's back to being your servant. Uh, again, this is probably a very culturally acceptable way to do things. Not a very good way to handle it either. And that leads to even more problems at the end of verse 6. This is a tragedy, a great tragedy, 
Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. The word dealt harshly, literally oppressed her, literally abused her. The same word is used at the beginning of Exodus for what Pharaoh did to Israel. What a tragic thing. This is what scheming gets you. God said, wait on me, Abraham, and I'll give you children. And guess what? Your family will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And here, Abraham schemed, and his family became a cursing to the nations of the world. That's what happened. She abused Hagar so severely that Hagar, only thing she could do is run away, and she's pregnant. And the only direction she has to run because of where they live is further into the desert. And so there she goes, way out into the desert, where nobody else is pregnant. Can you think of anything more tragic? Can you think of anything more cruel? Can you think of anything more out of character with the covenant people of God, Abraham and Sarah, than that? And yet, listen, this is why it's so important. When we as God's people don't learn how to trust God in the heart, we will destroy our witness to the world. Some people wonder, you know, why, why is it that in the church there's been so much mistreatment of people in the past? Why is there abuse in the church? Why is there things that we don't even want to mention that have happened in, in God's house? This is why, right? Because it's one thing to be in the covenant community. It's another thing to be trusting step by step the covenant Lord as you walk with him in faith. The moment that we stop walking with him by faith is the moment we begin to veer off into scheming, which is the moment we begin to veer off into instead of being a blessing to people, we become a great hindrance and a stumbling block to people. It's important. Um, of course, God doesn't want this to happen in Israel. God doesn't want this to happen in the church, but of course it does. And it's part of the process of us being humbled and learning, you know, as that we are not all that we're cracked up to be, that actually we're still sinners who need grace. And every day we need to be reminded that instead of my own works and my own schemes, I need to lay those down, put my deadly doings down, as the hymn says, and pick up once again the sheer promise, the sheer grace that comes by depending on the Holy Spirit and trusting in Him. Think about the, think about the moon. The moon shines. Beautiful. But does the moon have its own light? No. What happens when there's an eclipse of the moon? How does an eclipse happen? The earth gets between the sun and the moon so that the sun does not shine on the moon anymore and the moon grows dark. Perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. When God's people aren't growing in their ability to trust God, there's an eclipse that happens of God's gracious character to where instead of reflecting that character, we begin to reflect our own mess. 
and it gets us into all kinds of trouble. But that, too, is a part of what God is doing among us messy people. And when we get into trouble, it just reminds us to come running back to God's grace so that we might once again stare full on into the sun of it. Full on into the sun to, to once again reflect as best that we possibly can his love and his mercy towards the world. What a sad thing. God had a heart for the nations. Even back in Abraham's time, God had a heart for the nations. And yet Sarah and Abraham couldn't see past their own nose to share God's heart for the nations. And sometimes, y'all, we fall into that same category, that same mistake. Jesus put it this way, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? You are the light of the world, but if you light the light and put it under a basket, what good is it? You see, salt and light are only only make a difference because they're different. Different in a specific way, right? The moment they cease being different in that specific way is the moment they cease making a difference or cease doing good to those around them. Here, Abraham and Sarah were meant to make a difference by being different in that they trusted the God of the covenant. When they didn't trust the God of the covenant, they ceased to be different in that specific way, and they did not make a difference for good. They made a difference for bad. And the same thing can happen with us. It's not guaranteed just because we have church on the front door that we're going to be a light to the world. Or salt to the earth, because it's very possible to have salt that's not salty. And light that's underneath the bed. And the only way out of that, humble, step by step, day by day, even moment by moment, trust in the covenant word of God. You see it? It's important. Now let's look at the third thing. The God of seeing And this is something that I love. How does God respond to those who have been hurt by God's people who weren't trusting God? How does God respond to those who have been hurt by God's people because they didn't trust God? God sees them. God hears them. God pursues them. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord, which most scholars will tell you, the angel of the Lord is someone special in the Bible. He's not just an angel of the Lord. He's the angel of the Lord. In fact, when he shows up, people fall down. When he shows up and speaks, people say, the Lord has spoken to me. And so many scholars believe the angel of the Lord actually was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God in the Old Testament. I tend to think they have, they're on to something there, especially if you were to go this week into your concordance, you know, and look up every time the angel of the Lord appears, read them and see what you think. I think you'll notice some of the things that I'm saying. Here the angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar. How do you find something? You look for it. Here's someone who's been hurt by the community of the faith and run off. And yet the Lord of the community didn't forget her. He went after her and he found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Because, of course, in the wilderness, that's where you want to be, by a spring of water. There's not many of them out there. When you find one, stay there. That's what she did. The spring on the way to Shur. 
And he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I love, by the way, the questions that God asks people when he's chasing them down. I think we can rest assured he doesn't ask these questions because he doesn't know the answer. All right. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, where are you come from because he's wondering or where are you going because he's wondering. He, he's saying it because he wants her to say it. And what does she say? I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. She was supposed to take care of me. And so was Abram. She was supposed to teach me about God and his consistent character. And yet they did the opposite to me. They hurt me and drove me away. Here I am. Notice she doesn't say where she's going because she doesn't know. For right now, she's just out of spring. Then the angel of the Lord said, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. So that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. And you'll call his name Ishmael. What does Ishmael mean? God hears. God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Your son will be a wild donkey of a man. And, you know, it's going to be a... Crazy story, and we know this. You can read it throughout the Bible, and even down to the present day, you can read about Ishmael and the way that uh, Ishmael and his descendants have been rivals to the others uh, who descended from other folks, especially in the Middle East, and the way that those stories get played off each other. In fact, it's well known that in the Quran, which is like a Judeo-Christian conspiracy theory, basically, uh, not to make light of the Quran, but just to say that's basically what it presents itself as. It's saying, look, this is the real story of what happened. In the Quran, it says Ishmael was the one. He was the chosen one, and, and Sarah and Abraham covered it up. And now here I am, Muhammad, to tell you that Ishmael was the one. So think about that. I mean, Islam didn't start till 600 years after Jesus. This happened 2,000 years before Jesus. 2,600 years, and this division was still happening. Because of Abraham and Sarah's lack of trust in God. And yet, God is saying very clearly to Hagar and very clearly to Ishmael, I see you, I hear you. And so she called the name, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. You see me. Nobody else saw me. You see, I got the impression from Sarah and Abraham, God didn't care nothing about me. But when you came after me, O angel of the Lord, and found me in the desert by this just kind of seemingly God-forsaken oasis, I knew for certain you're a God who sees and you're a God who hears. And the well from that day on was called Beir Laha Roi, the, living, the, the, the well of the living one who sees. Wow. Do you see what's going on here? 
God is once again showing his heart for the nations. He's once again showing his heart for the outcasts. He's once again showing his heart for those who have been bitterly treated, especially within the community of faith. Because he's saying this, when God's people don't trust him, God will find somebody who does. And how does God find somebody who trusts him? He makes somebody who trusts him by showing up in their point of deepest need and revealing himself as the God who pays attention, pursues, hears, and sees, and provides. Yes, Hagar may not be Sarah. Yes, Ishmael may not be Isaac, but yet God was going to still bless that line of the family too. And you know something? This day, this day, there are descendants of Ishmael who believe wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ. And they're every bit as much in the kingdom of God as Sarah is, and Abraham is, and Isaac is, and Jacob is, and on down the rest. Because, and that's exactly what God, this is what God was literally foretelling to Hagar there by the well. I'm not going to let your family line go. Don't worry. I got you. And when Jesus Christ came and met, for example, the woman at another well, and she was a foreigner too, and everybody thought she had nothing to do with God and nothing to do with salvation, or at least nothing right to do with God or salvation, because she was also an immoral woman. Jesus said to her, ask of me and I'll give you living water. A water that if you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. Just ask of me. And she says, Lord, how can, I don't have a bucket that big. How can I draw water that much? I don't have a bucket that big. And Jesus says, oh, I'm not talking about water you can draw with a bucket. Don't worry about your buckets. I'm talking about water that I give drawn by the cords of faith. And then Jesus said to her, don't worry. There's a day coming and now is already here when God, who is seeking true worshipers, is making true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth by grace. It's a repeat of Hagar, the woman at the well story. It's a repeat of that same story. God once again revealing his heart for the nations. And we can never forget that, y'all. Never forget that. It is a grave danger when we become Christians, and we were Christians for a long time, we can get so insulated within the Christian world that we forget God's still pursuing people outside of it. You know? And, and honestly, if we, if we don't join in that pursuit, God's going to pursue them anyway. You know? Welcome back, kids. If we don't join in that pursuit, God's still going to pursue them anyway. But oh, what much better joy if we continue to keep our eyes on the prize that we also were far off and God pursued us. And therefore, those who are far off, they're not too far off for God. Those who are hurt and wounded are not too hurt and wounded for God. God pursues, God sees, God hears, God blesses. Wow. Can you imagine that? Mm. What a God we serve, isn't it? What a covenant he's made with us.
Think about this. I'm closing, but I got a lot of thoughts. Trying to figure which one to end with. Here's the one I'm going to go with. Sarah, for the rest of her life, would now have to call that boy's name. She'd have to say, Ishmael. And every time she said it, what was she saying? He hears. Wow. And so not only was God pursuing the nations in this story, but he's pursuing the heart of his people that's already in, and yet they, are, they don't get it. By pursuing the nations in the way that he does, he teaches the hearts of his own people to once again let the dross fall away and let pure faith come. He hears. I didn't think he heard me. I thought he had forgotten me. I thought he was preventing me. That's why I did all this in the first place. But man, do I ever know now. He sees, he hears, he pursues.